Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Anyway, you know, we, we share a, a pal, the delightful, adorable Melissa Clark. Yes, indeed. Uh, we a, certainly do. What a sweetheart. Yeah. Absolutely. A, a total sweetheart. Absolutely. Uh, so, Alice, is uh, I'm guessing that she, the, it's firing and not fearing? It's firing. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you, you and William F. Buckley. Right. right. Exactly. In fact, that's from. why I called my newsletter the firing line. Just, But, of course, people don't remember that, you know, well, I'm, I'm under enough, a certain age. I'm old <laughs> enough to remember. Right. Well, let's go back to the very beginning when, uh, first of all, I, I didn't realize that there were, that women went to the equivalent of yeshivas. I know in Brooklyn we had, we had Rambam and I knew a, a lot of kids who, uh, who went to, he went to real Hebrew school. Yeah. Uh, fortunately I escaped that. Um, and I never associated wine. I mean, wine to me, and I'm sure to you was, uh, Manischewitz, Morgan David, and, mm -hmm. and hopefully uh, you escaped the period when Sammy Davis was dancing and selling uh, Manischewitz cream sherry. I forgot about that. <laughs> that was quite funny. Quite funny, <laughs> to say the least. So uh, I'm guessing that your first taste of wine was either Manischewitz or Morgan Davis. It was uh, certainly, well, no, it wasn't Manischewitz. I think the house... The house brand was either Shapiro's, it was probably Shapiro's, or made in uh, the Lower East Side, or Carmel. Oh, Carmel from Israel. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. And and you had any, was there anyone that you particularly liked out of that? Oh, my God. They were all from the same recipe. They were all the same. Manischewitz may have been a little bit more one note, I think, uh -huh. you know, but I think, you know, with that age, I was mixing it with seltzer and dipping challah in it, but. I mean, to this day, whenever I see uh, uh, Concord table grapes in a supermarket, I, I must buy them. And it must be Proustian, but it brings back that that memory of that right. that stuff that we only four uh, four sips, fortunately. Right. Well, you know, they're better in the grape form than they are into the abomination that they turn that super sweet stuff in. Because you can actually make a Concord grape dry. It you doesn't can. have to be sickly sweet. No. Is there a brand that comes to mind that we should be no, shopping for? absolutely not. There are no good ones. Sorry. <laughs> but I was just thinking about making wine with this uh, Rav I know in Brooklyn. And I said, can you get any? Or Because he is make, he does make wine commercially. And I want to make a natural wine with him. And he, I said, any organic grapes around? He said, well, I could get some Concord. I'm like, Ugh, mm. I, don't, I don't know. But maybe. Maybe I'll give it a shot. So what is your uh, Pesach uh, quaff these days? You mentioned singa, Singular. Oh, Singular, which is not a kosher wine. I just okay. I just, uh, I just, just drew an OU on it to fool my mom. But no, at this point, I've given it up, and um, I just drink regular wine for the four cups on Passover. <laughs> I mean, are there – I mean, I remember finding uh, some reds that weren't bad. Yeah. I, can, I remember a label, I think uh, Tobias was the painter, kind of imitating the Rothschild idea. Right. And I can't remember the uh, the label, but it was actually drinkable. But actually, you get better kosher wines in France than we do in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of things that just don't come over here. 
you let's go back a little bit because before you uh, went to war with Robert Parker, uh, you were writing on other other subjects. Let's come right. back up and talk a little bit about your educational background, the years in Boston, and uh, the topics you were writing about as you struggled to become a successful writer. Um, let's see, go, going back to, well, I went to graduate school in Boston for something called expressive arts therapy with um, specifically dance movement therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, when I was writing my master's thesis, I went back to writing. It basically, you know, I had gone away from writing for about three years since I, well, two years, yeah, three years since since college because I just couldn't figure out how to do it or that I didn't have the guts to do it. Mm -hmm. But when I started writing the master's thesis, I just couldn't stop. So that kind of got me in. I was wine tasting all through my time in Boston, but never thinking it would be anything like a career, nor did I connect it at all to wine writing. So at some point, uh, my writing got a hold of me up in Boston, and I realized I had to move back to New York. It took me four years to figure out exactly how to do it. Um, and basically to have the nerve to land in New York and say, hey, New York, I'm a writer. Like, give me work. So, I don't know. Did and, I answer And you? you got work from... Um... Well, it took a while. I did what other people... I had a few... I came armed with a few clips. My mm -hmm. first published pieces were essays, which actually my last book is a, is a memoir and essays. Mm -hmm. A kind of a genre that I started early and never gave up. Hello, that's the book. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and uh, um, I started doing a couple of food and wine reviews uh, and just slowly started to build it up. I got a job working about writing about design at Interiors Magazine. And I thought, okay, I'm on the road. That kind of collapsed after eight months, and then I was back in the freelance. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, I was writing about wine, food, and design. At some point at the year 2000, I got a job doing a wine book, a wine guide. And here, you know, the way the world sees you, that put me into the little, oh, you're a wine writer, mm -hmm. which is something I never wanted to be exclusively. It really seemed too limiting. And um, and then I wrote, I was doing a lot of freelancing for the New York Times, wrote a, call, a piece in the business section for Better for Worse, Winemakers Go High Tech. And that was kind of the beginning and the end in a certain way. It, it definitely put me into not only the wine writer category, but as the bad girl wine writer category, I was now a controversial wine writer, sometimes too hot to handle by other people. And ironically, that was the piece that set me on the path to natural wine. Um, and then the rest is kind of Alice's history. There was, uh, many people may not remember who Robert Parker is. So Robert Parker was at the time the most famous wine critic in the world. There probably was no other world-famous wine critic before him, and I don't know whether there'll be one after him. But uh, I was going more and more to natural wine, and I was relaying the traditional wines of the world were disappearing because winemakers were making wine to this man's palate, to his taste. And to do that, they were using all sorts of technology. So that is why I wrote 
Battle for One and Love, or How I Saved the World from Parkerization. Yeah, what? let's describe, if you would, natural wine, or some of the varieties from the, the old techniques. Um, well, natural wine is, as I say, from organic viticulture, and then nothing added, nothing taken away in the winemaking process. So there are over 70 additives that are perfectly legal in winemaking, and um, a lot of them very commonplace, like yeast, but very specific yeast that can design the way the wine can smell and taste. Really very um, invasive in you know, where the outcome of the wine is the, is the objective, not just the expression of where a grape comes from and what is that wine like, which is the kind of stuff that I prefer. So um, that's natural wine. It has either no sulfites or minimal. And so the wine is much more free, more expressive, for better or for worse. Um, and, um, you know, that's... It's just way more suited to my taste, and at this point, to a lot of other people's tastes. The wines are certainly more alive. Mm -hmm. Is that? No, I, no, absolutely. The uh, answer. One of the things you talked about was, and I, and I uh, the power of Parker and his uh, hundred point system, and that there were distributors in the Bay Area who did not want to. Uh, go along with your uh, observations for fear that uh, uh, he would uh, harm their wines with his ratings. And That's I, right. uh, in my heart, I, I hope it wasn't Kermit Lynch we're talking about. No. Oh, It's go okay. Ahead. It's okay. He sold the business. His son is, yeah, it was Kermit. I don't mm. think he would mind that now. Okay. Um, it was Kermit, but he did, he did to his credit. I mean, he loved the book and he said, but I'll give you a really good book party. <laughs> and he did. I had a great book party at the shop. It was fabulous. Yeah, because I, I interviewed him about 20 years ago, and I was a, a big fan of what he had done in, in bringing French wines to, uh, uh, to California and his friendship. Yeah. And I later had a, an opportunity to meet the Lulu just a few mm -hmm. years before she died. Oh, lucky you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was astonishing, just astonishing. So as you begin to do this... Um, what was your approach? Because you know you weren't you weren't like the wine critic at the New York Times. You weren't the Isaac Asimov, if you will, of that time, or yeah. other people. Right. Um, so I blogged. Oh God, I blogged. I started blogging in two thousand four because I couldn't really get much freelance work after that story for the New York Times. There's some people that I could write for Wall Street Journal magazine, Time magazine, as long as it was more general stuff. But as far as my insights in the wine world, it would have to be in, in my blog. And then, uh, you know, of course, the book came along. And uh, the second book came along, Naked Wine. It seems like every three years I have another book these days. I don't know how that managed. I started writing books. Mm -hmm. with um, That was the really the only way that I could establish a platform and build it for myself. At that point, really not, there was not a whole lot of community let's put it this way, pre-Instagram, there wasn't a whole lot of information about natural wine. And I was pretty much the only American traveling in that wine world. There were a few people in France, there were a few people in um, Scandinavia, but really the only American. Uh, so I was really kind of the important conduit of what's going on in Europe, what's happening in the wine world, what's going on with the 
burgeoning natural wine universe as it crept out of France slowly into Italy, into Spain. Of course, now Italy and Spain are certainly 100% with the program, but to Georgia, to Chile. And now the natural wine world is really too big for one person to at all cover. And um, in, in a little bit, the way at some point the wine world was too big for even Robert Parker to cover, so he had to hire other people other than himself. But it was my books, it was lecturing, and I must say I would have loved a position like Eric Asimov has. You know, I would love to have that kind of wonderful platform other than one that I built for myself. Mm -hmm. But it must be very gratifying you know, to do that, to realize that you you saw something, you perceived something in the market, you, uh, you chased it, you met the people who were responsible for it. At, so, at some level, you were the fundatrice, if yes. you will, of, uh, yeah. of natural wines. Yes, I have. Yes, I'll remember that one. I haven't been called that yet, but yes, in some just, ways. Just quote me. You can use it. Okay, but I, thank Apple, you. Attribution always. Attribution I, is very important. Absolutely, even more important than money. Money follows attribution. Right. It's true. It's true. But actually, in about money, at some point, um, actually, two thousand and two thousand and twelve. When was Hurricane Sandy? Um, yeah, two thousand and twelve. Um, I launched my newsletter because I just I needed to be paid. So it was basically I was Substack before it was Substack. This is so a firing line. The firing line. The right. Firing At, line. I believe sixty-eight dollars uh, a year. Yes, I keep on threatening to raise it, which well, I'm going to have to do. Seventy-five is an. Uh, I okay, just turned seventy-five, and I I think it has more vitality than sixty-eight. <laughs> okay, you know, all right. It's got, Thank you. I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's because it's been sixty-eight since almost the beginning, and it's like you know I, I need to raise guys. And are uh, are you monthly? I am every three weeks. Okay. It's okay. very much like me. I, two weeks is I just couldn't do it, mm -hmm. but every three weeks, and then, um, and then after then it gets packaged into a little e-zine. Uh, and, you know, at this point, there's got a, quite a huge body of work up there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, over, you know, like 1,500 wine recommendations that, wow. you know, which are so pretty good. Um, you know, a writer has got to find a way to make a living. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that was that. Was that. Well, it's good, you know, that you're a talker. A lot of writers are can write and can't talk. And some people uh, like myself can talk and are lazy writers, but it, uh, to be able to do both is uh, is, is an achievement. And well, I, good. I'm glad that you say I can talk because sometimes I wonder. But great. Well, you, you can talk into me, but you know, but I'm not threatening. You know, I'm just a I'm just another Jewish guy from Brooklyn. You know, you know, lots of us are over the you, years. I'm sure. Yeah, but who ended up in Paris? Well, yeah, that's true. That was a bit of a, a it was somewhat planned. It's definitely somewhat planned. Yes, maybe when I'm, one day in my future, too. Well, one day when you come, I'll be happy to go and uh, share a bottle of wine with you somewhere. That'd be great. Are you, are you coming anytime soon? Anytime soon, no, but my but this book, um, To Fall in Love, Drink This, will be Which... published in French. Ah, cool. At the, end of, uh, at the end of this year. Well, by all means, stay in touch, because I have a, a large contingent of, of readers and of fans, if you will, here, we'll, we'll do something to promote the English language, but get a little... Once, a, great. 
And Wonderful. get a little assist from your uh, French. Who is your French publisher? Um, it is uh, Norfolk Two. Okay. They're small, um, but they published um, my Georgian book as well. Good. And they're great. Well, terrific. Well, that's, and they're great. That's yeah. wonderful. The, um, let's go back to, uh, back to the beginning of your tasting. Do you remember the first uh, good wine that you drank? I'm not great wine, <laughs> but that you could distinguish. Yeah, I will. Actually, the first good wine, the first wine that made a difference to me. I can tell you that one. The, the, there was the bottle of wine, I have it here, that um, that was the wine that showed me this is not normal. This is not normal stuff. This is beyond a drink that I just like to drink. This is beyond taste. This is mind-opening. And that was a Barolo. It was a 12-year-old Barolo that I drank in 1980, so it was in 1968. Giovanni Scanavino, a guy that is long dead and the company is gone. But that wine was mind-blowing. It was probably my first older wine. It's probably the oldest wine I had had at that point. Twelve years, not much. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, I write about it in the book. Um, it's my... My father, the woman my father left my mother for, had a not yet ex-husband who had a wine cellar. And I was living in Boston, and I went to visit my father before I took the People's Express. Oh, by the way, home. having read the book, your father was a character, as we yes, would say here, in Numeral. <laughs> yeah. I mean that in the best sense of the word. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, he was um, he was quite a character, but and so was his paramour. Oh my God! But but more in the not as entertaining. I, I don't think. But she told me to go in and take what I wanted. I said, Whoa. go into that cellar and take what you wanted. And I, you know, there was a lot of wine there, and I was always very shy, and I just was not very good. At, I'm not somebody who'd like take it all. So I came out with three bottles. This is one of them. Mm. Um, there was an Alsatian and a German that I took as well. And, you know, they mocked me for only taking three bottles. But what the hell? I took that bottle back to Boston, opened it up with somebody I had been tasting with all those years. Actually, at that point, it was only two years since I'd been in Boston. And my kind of non-drinking boyfriend. And, and I opened it up with them, and it was just, it just was mind-blowing. It was, it was I wrote down these notes. I had no idea what older Barolo was supposed to taste like, but my notes were classic. They were sandalwood. They were rose. They were tar. They were licorice. Um, had all of those. It was, it was lightweight but powerful. It was intensely complex in a very ethereal, lively delivery system. Were you just tasting or were you eating something? Oh, we were it? drinking. We, we were drinking with eating with a dinner. Um, it was North End ravioli and sauce and whatever I made. Okay. Yeah, oh, we were sitting in my kitchen at 136 Huron Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> Sound, it sounds like a street in Chicago, Huron Avenue. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All of those uh, French names and Indian yeah. names. Yeah. Uh, so do you, are you still fond of uh, Barola? I am still extremely fond of Barola. And if... Since that bottle can't be found, what would be what should we be drinking when we go to our local Marchand de Vin? Uh, well, there are more and more. There's a return to some natural winemaking. Um, if you can find uh, Principiano. Principiano. 
Yeah, French piano. Um, his wines are beautiful, whether it's his Barolo, whether it's Nebbiolo, whether it's Freja, just beautiful stuff. Um, what else? Uh, you know, there are the people that are, he's affordable, which I like. Of course, there are the non-affordables, the classic like Bartolo Mascarello, um, uh, Finocchio does a very nice job more on the traditional side than on the totally natural side. Uh, Capilano is beautiful, also extremely pricey. I mean, this is the problem, right? Berlotto does a great job. That's also somewhat more affordable. Um, actually, I see Rodolo in Barbaresco, not, yes, that's not Barolo, but, you know, it's Barbaresco. It's the same grape, just a different town. Definitely look for Fabio Gea. Fabio? Fabio Gea, actually not Gea. Okay. Uh, Fabio Gea, G-E-A. Eccentric, very natural, crazy stuff that is kind of mind-blowing. Beautiful. Somewhere towards the end of the book, and, and we'll jump around, there's no chronology here, uh, you talk about Van Jean and specifically uh, Savignan. Yeah. Which... Uh, I think maybe as you as well. First time I saw it, I said, Sauvignon. What is this? Right, I don't. Exactly. I don't. I don't know this wine. And it was. Uh, uh, it was extraordinary. I, it's uh, everybody's first mistake. Everybody who drinks yeah, that yeah, first mistake. <laughs> I had a, a friend of mine who was in the champagne business uh, and ordered it over over lunch. And then I every time I saw it on the menu, I had to order it again. Uh, I don't. I, I can't speak wine talk the way you do. Describe it. Yeah. It. Uh, Sauvignon is um, can be made in, is Jura white grape that is um, really is the grape of Vangin, but it is made in two different ways. So it's either made like Vangin, which is under an oxidative and in, in an oxidative environment, which means it doesn't get topped off, so it lets oxygen interact with the wine and it develops this floor on top which change gets gives it some cherry notes so there's that way to make it and i love that that's like little 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 baby vengeance or it is made in a more reductive environment where the wine is not really exposed to oxygen um and that will be fresher but either way they're very salty wines. There's a tremendously beautiful salinity. Um, there's an angularity. There's not going to be a plushness in it the way you might have with this uh, Chardonnay grape, which, by the way, I think the Gironde probably makes some of the best Chardonnay in the world. Sorry, Burgundy. Um, but that's my sweet spot for Chardonnay. Um, and it is... It is really defined by its salinity, and if it's going to have the floor, it's going to have some notes of, you know, hazelnut and some dried fruit. But it is an unusual, highly drinkable. The acidity is is pronounced. Um, sometimes in some of the more natural Sauvignon, you can get um, a little bit of volatility, which works in its favor. A little tiny bit hint of nail polish, kind of high tone. <laughs> which can be quite Revlon, beautiful. of course. Yeah, of course. of course. So that is, if people are not, you don't see it around a lot, and I suggest if you see it, by all means, go for it. Have a How, taste of it. Most most of my readers are, are in the States. How available it is it? Let's say oh, in, there's seven now. Yeah. Okay. New can, York, California, you'll find it. You'll our, find our, it. Our friend Kermit would probably have a bottle and over in Berkeley. Who are Kermit's Jura producers? I do not remember who's mm -hmm. Jura. 
Who yes, he does. I would, I would suspect must. it's must. something he'd be aware of. Yeah. The, um, I want to go back. There's a little uh, story, and since we're uh, you know we're, we're talking about Jews here, my conversation yeah. my conversation with Melissa was about half in Yiddish about Brooklyn eating. Uh, but the two of you went went to um, Auschwitz Birkenau and Majanic on a uh, on, on a whiskey trip. Uh, you must talk about right. that. Well, we didn't go to Medanek um, because it was just too far, even though we were up in Krakow. Um, so, Your friend Sarah did, was from Medanek. Right. Well, my, my cousin, Your yeah, cousin, my right, cousin. Right, yeah. So um, neither Melissa and I were people who took a lot of press trips, but we would at, at the time take a few just because they're too compromising and, you know, mm -hmm. you can't write about it. So... But you want to take me and, you know, like nothing promised you it will go. But she wanted to go on this one for a vodka trip in outside of Warsaw. And she said, let's go. And then afterwards, going to go to Krakow and let's go to Auschwitz. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Auschwitz. I had I said, I really don't want to go. I just the idea of uh, concentration camp tourism was not appealing to me. And I just wasn't there yet. But... Um, I said, no, I want to go to the family camp. I mean, making a joke of it, but that is, I had just finished working on my cousin Sarah's memoir of her in and out of the Lublin ghetto, Warsaw ghetto, Medanek camp, escape from the Medanek camp. Well, what, what's it, the title of that memoir? It was never published, oh. and we never could figure out a title. I wanted to call it Burnt Soup, and she didn't like that. Um, but um, one day I'm going to revive it. Sarah passed away right before the pandemic started. Uh, but it was, um, and I, it's one of the projects that I want to go back to because it's an amazing story of that. This, you know, I remember said, oh, we can't use another Holocaust story. This type of story has not been told. So anyway, we couldn't manage that. I said, no, Auschwitz is just too commercial. I don't want to go to a museum and a camp. But... If we can go to Birkenau, okay. And she said, fine, let's do it. So uh, we get to, we separate from the other people we're traveling with. Um, we hire a car, we go to Auschwitz. It was snowing. It was February. Who, who goes to Poland in February? <laughs> it was really, you know, it was... Well, um, Steven Spielberg. Right, exactly. But when he's filming, it was kind of amazing. And it was eerie. And you know, go to Auschwitz, the familiar Arbeitmachtfrei sign, which is so much small, mm. smaller than you expect. It has such huge meaning. And it's petite. Um, it was people, it was very commercial, not very happy there. But we then we take the short ride to in fact there's i think there's a mcdonald's right outside of auschwitz but then we go to Birkenau. No, no souvenir shops they did have a souvenir shop i would not go into it um i did go to the toilet though mm. and to the famous gassing chambers and um it was but there was something really weird about being in a camp like that that was so sanitized you know, it was sanitized, and it was also a lot of um, the the bunker dedicated to the Jews was locked. God knows when it was ever opened, and you know certainly the one for um, 
the Polish people were open and it was, it seemed like the message of the museum is, yeah, the Jews and everybody else, but what about the Poles? And I'm like, yeah, well, what about Poles? So, um, of course, there are good people everywhere, but let's not go there right now. When we go to Birkenau, nothing was there. It was exactly what I wanted. And Uh it was left the driver and went up to get the lay of the land in the observation tower. It was so weird to be able to walk this place that had been cleaned but had not been sanitized. There was a map showing you where everything was. Uh, The crematorium had been bombed at the end of the war, so you could see its chimney sticking out from the snow. There was a considerable amount of snow on the ground. Walk through the barracks, the graffiti was still on the wall. It was just the mattresses were taken. It was swept, but it wasn't sanitized. Mm-hmm. It was just what it was. And then at some point, we're walking along. We go try to go to this crematorium, and it starts snowing really heavily. And we swear we are not going to get out of that camp alive. And mm-hmm. it was so weird with just the, the you know just my cousin's vivid vivid descriptions of the camps and the cold and um, and just Warsaw and you know during the cold and and just it just all came alive and we were just we like we're grasping to each other we're never getting out here this is so ironic it was just whose film do we walk into okay yeah, and I'm it here. seems we if there. you internalized and felt all these collected uh, receive memories from people that you had known and at that moment you were all of those people all um, those people grasping all the for ghosts air there. and getting out yeah all, all the ghosts there we were I and Melissa is a super good friend, yes, and we are both very, like, raw nerve people. You know, we're receptors. It was, we did finally get out. We knew, we knew realistically we would find the way out, though in, it was near whiteout conditions. Um, and somewhere on the, somewhere on the other side of the barbed wire was a guy in a car waiting to take us away, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was it. It was, um, and then we had a very washed out, but beautiful day in Krakow Mm -hmm. after that. It was um, quite a vivid day. You were there, if I'm not mistaken, was it Belvedere? Yes, Uh, it was for Belvedere Baca. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, a lot of people are not aware. I mean, how influential Jews were in in, in liquor business in in Poland uh, pre-Shoah. Right, exactly. So it's something that not only in, you know, there are several books that I haven't written. This is one of them, not mm-hmm. only in the liquor business, but a wine business and actually as growers and makers, not just in the business. But the Jews were extremely influential in Poland in the distilling base business, mm-hmm. distilling and bars, actually. And Belvedere was owned by a Jewish family. And I was highly offended that nowhere around there do they say, because they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. They just, well, they disappeared. They disappeared. And, and, yeah. and, the, and the war effort took it over. All right. And well, what happened to them? Yeah, so um, I did a well, I did in, in the chapter, I go into a little bit of that research about what happened to them. Well, when you write that book, we'll have an, have another conversation. Okay, good. But why don't why don't we go out w- with a smile? Okay. Um, so when you're sitting at your apartment with your mm-hmm. lover, partner, whatever mm-hmm. 
the vocabularies these days. Uh, and you, uh, you, you go in, you pull out a, a little cheese from someplace in France, hopefully. Uh, what kind of red, red wine are you pouring just on a quotidian basis? Oh, on a quotidian basis. You know, I go in and out of having house wines. And my last house wine was a Domaine Guillon, um, which is a Bourgogne, very well-priced. So hard to get in, in the States. It's so hard to get a well-priced wine. But this one was going for like $14, $15, $16 a bottle. Why, by the um, case? Yeah, well, by the bottle and cheaper by the case if you could get it. It's also, actually, Domingue Guillon is, um, I know most of your readers are in the States, but is often in the bio shops in in Paris mm -hmm. for, you know, like 10 years. Um, I'll, but I'll find it now, yeah. Yeah, and it's just a very, very earthy earthy, earthy bourgeois, and sometimes that's all I want. Just give me the earth, and it's great with cheese. Uh, if if it is in the summer, there's a lot of times that I'm just going to be doing Muscadet or Atlantic Whites. Um, Muscadet is great for every day because the price is lower, mm -hmm. and it gives, is a power pack of deliciousness. Um, and it loves those oysters. And it does, indeed. And the oysters loves it. Lem. Or it. it. You know, in the Atlantic, what, you're Benjamin. looking at out of uh, a Loire, something, uh, yeah, Manitou Salon, perhaps? Not Manitou, but that would be okay. Sauvignon Blanc, but on the coast, at a Nantes Muscadet, it's mm -hmm. really on the coast. Or, like I said, the other part of the Atlantic, um, Albarino, mm -hmm. uh, from a natural producer, of course, like uh, Alberto Nanclares or Vimbina Bio. I am partial i remain partial to beaujolais as well so that would be like like a, a foyer or la pierre uh well for every day la uh, foyer and la pierre are a little bit too expensive mm -hmm. so actually these days uh, christian ducru is delicious okay. and um uh Dufetre, his premise is delightful at under 20 bucks so yeah those i'll look for because i mean i think kermit's responsible for inflating the price of, the, of those two, uh, two guys. I used, to, I used to buy it in Berkeley for next to nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, mean I used to buy a, a Vacras from uh, Saint de Caillou for uh, uh, nothing also. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Which is we like. I like Kermit. He, he hurts my pocketbook. Anyway, a just the, uh, the book again is To Fall in Love, Drink This. And did you fall in love with the wine or did you fall in love with someone? Um, both? Well, I... Uh, both, right? There's yeah, a lot yeah. of love of both in there. So, at, uh, yeah, there are a couple of boyfriends, past and present, mm -hmm. in the book. Okay. And a lot of love for wine there. And it goes deeper than that. A little, it's a little, just as a metaphor for life. A, little, a, love, a love of life. Alice, it's, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I look forward to your visit to Paris. And let's please stay in touch because it will be great I to will. introduce you to, uh, to my readers and my friends here in Paris. Be fabulous. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.